You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. This stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Malaria remains a very significant public health problem. Last year, more than 200 million people contracted malaria around the world, and nearly half a million died of it. As countries continue to battle malaria within their borders, the international discussion has turned to an even loftier goal, the complete global eradication of malaria. In this episode of Take as Directed, I sit down with a longstanding friend, Sir Richard Feacham, director of the Global Health Group at UCSF Global Health Sciences and professor of global health at both the University of California, San Francisco and the University of California, Berkeley. Sir Feacham previously served as the founding executive director of the Global Fund to Fight HIV, AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria and Undersecretary General of the United Nations. Today, we'll be discussing the Lancet Commission on Malaria Eradication, a group of international experts that he has led and their new report that lays out a vision to achieve the complete eradication of malaria. That report titled Malaria Eradication Within a Generation, Ambitious, Achievable and Necessary. So welcome, Richard. It's great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you so much for taking the time and congratulations on the issuance of the report. I know these reports are a vast amount of effort and it reads well. It's powerful. It'll certainly do a lot to raise the visibility of malaria, which we know is always important and necessary. No shortage of need for that. So tell us just rapidly sort of what's in the report that our listeners are going to find most compelling and interesting. Well, the Commission's report was published on September 9, two years of work, 41 authors, of whom 26 are commissioners. And we looked in detail at the question of can malaria be eradicated, by when, what might it cost, who would pay for it, and should we commit to eradication with a fixed end date. And in summary, the conclusions of the Commission were that it can be eradicated, and it can be eradicated by 2050, which is what we call within a generation possibly sooner, but we're confident in the 2050 date, that it is affordable and there is a plausible pathway to gathering the funds both from countries and internationally that we need, that it's very worthwhile in terms of the return on investment, that the synergies with other global goals, such as the sustainable development goals or universal health coverage, are very strong. It's a win-win proposition. And finally, that the alternative of not committing to eradication by 2050 is very unattractive. We'll get into some of these issues in a moment. Just give us a quick overview. You did a rollout with WHO Director General Dr. Tedros hosting in Geneva, and then you did a series of events in London 
as well. What came out of those? Well, the first launch, as you say, was in Geneva, hosted personally by Dr. Ted Ross, the Director General of WHO at WHO. And that was a very good afternoon of discussion about the Commission's findings and debate about those. I think a strong positive mood in favor of the Commission's recommendations and finding the detail in the Commission report extremely useful for the various organizations that have to take the next set of actions. We then moved on to London, where there was a half-day event, very well attended, and again, lively debate. Participants associated with the Commission and participants quite independent of the Commission having a good debate about the Commission's recommendations. And once again, I think a very positive atmosphere in support of what the Commission is saying. And then we had other events in London. We had a parliamentary roundtable. We had a roundtable with DFID, the major UK bilateral aid agency, and a very productive dinner at the House of Lords focused on the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth has committed to half malaria by 2023. Mm-hmm. That would certainly help us towards the eradication goal by 2050. And we're preparing now for the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Kigali in June 2020, when malaria will be center stage. So the timing of the release of the commission report, I mean, it's right before the high-level meeting on UHC at the UN General Assembly, and it's right before the replenishment for the Global Fund. What is your hope in terms of being able to shape discussions? The release of this is not accidental. No, no, the timing is deliberate. You are correct. I think coming first to the Global Fund and the Global Fund Replenishment, which is critically important, the Commission determined that at the moment we're spending about $4.3 billion per year on malaria. That's a higher estimate than previous estimates. And we recommend an additional $2 billion. And we recommend that $500 million of that should come from DAH, from Development Assistance for Health, in other words, from aid budgets. Mm-hmm. If the Global Fund, a month from now in France, receives the increase in funding that it is seeking, and as of today, things look good in in that regard, that will put an extra $200 million per year for malaria alone into the Global Fund coffers. And that will make a big difference. Discussions are going on already with Peter Sands, the head of the Mm -hmm. Global Fund, and Mm -hmm. with his team about how that money would be spent. But that would be a big boost to the fight against malaria, that extra $200 million with the Global Fund. On the UHC agenda, the Commission paid a lot of attention to the synergies and the win-win propositions between malaria eradication and UHC and found a number of important areas of overlap and, if you like, common cause between the UHC agenda and the malaria eradication agenda. And we very much hope that that thinking will be expressed at the upcoming UN General Assembly and create dual support for UHC on the one hand, Mm -hmm. but also for malaria eradication as a key component of UHC and something that will drive UHC forward. So let's take some of these issues. I mean, the eradication target, that's stirred some press discussion. It's raised issues around what is the upside and what's the downside of having an eradication target of 2050 versus setting more near-term goals. And it's revealed that there's an active debate and division within the malaria community around this. So tell us a little bit about how important 
Is this eradication target in the overall community of folks that work on malaria? Is this revealing divisions that distract or confuse donors? Or is it not that important a debate when you look at the fact that probably on 95% of other matters, there's full consensus between, for instance, what the WHO is putting out in its executive summary of its most recent not fully released report versus what you're proposing? Well, great questions. The commission concludes that because it is possible to eradicate by 2050 and we can see a pathway to doing that, the commitment with a fixed end date in the view of the commission is absolutely critical. It makes the commitment to eradicate real and tangible and it allows the rational setting of those intermediate near-term targets. It's not a choice between near-term targets and an eradication end date. The two go hand in hand. You set the eradication end date, 2050, and you work back backwards from that to say exactly where we need to be in 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, 20. So those things go hand in hand. And a commitment without an end date is frankly vague and rhetorical, and it doesn't stimulate the action required to overcome the challenges that we still face. It is the commitment with the end date that leads to the finding of the solutions Mm -hmm. to the problem. But having this open squabble among malaria experts, is that damaging? Well, I don't think we've got an open squabble. I think it's very telling that Dr. Tedros has expressed support for the commission's findings and recommendations, that he personally hosted the launch Mm -hmm. of the commission report. So I'm not sure at all we've got a scramble. And after a week of discussing the report since its publication, we've heard back from technical agencies, from scientific bodies, Mm -hmm. from donors, from NGOs, who I think without exception have said, this is really useful. We like the dynamism and the firm goal presented by an end date. And for the donors, it says spend extra money until 2050 and then a major historic target will have been achieved Mm -hmm. rather than spend extra money perhaps in perpetuity. And we're not quite sure when we're going to get the job done. In terms of the appeal that you're making here, to move the malaria world out of its stagnant funding status, which is a dangerous place to be, right? Stagnant funding. If you're not moving forward on malaria, you're moving backwards. Right. And I'm very encouraged to hear what you said about the prospects of the Global Fund putting another $200 a year into malaria. Your report's calling for a doubling of commitment by the high burden countries themselves. Where do you see the greatest prospect of having that happen? Right. Because, you know, a skeptic could look at this and say, look, we've got stagnant budgets across the board on multiple global Mm. health accounts. Mm. It's going to take something that's special and different in order to get governments, the high burden countries, which I think one of the shifts of strategy that's most important and commendable is the movement towards a focus on the high burden countries. But if they're not stepping forward with additional resources, your strategy isn't going to move. So where are we going to see that move, do you see? Well, two or three things, Stephen, on that front. And obviously, the commission thought long and hard about this. Firstly, there is ample opportunity to accelerate progress and to do better. We have a number of recommendations, which if put into practice, and they are beginning to be put into practice, Mm -hmm. will accelerate the decline of malaria even at current funding levels. So we're not saying we wait for more funding before we can do anything impactful. We're saying the opposite of that. 
We're calling for an additional two billion in total. Five hundred million of that comes from the international community, of which two hundred million would come from the global fund if we are successful in France in three weeks' time. That leaves three hundred million, and we have a big eye on China. In 2020, China will host a major jamboree to celebrate the declaration of malaria freedom. For the first time in two, three thousand years, for China, a huge historic event,、yeah. and we're hopeful that China at that time will use that platform to announce a major program of assistance to countries in Asia and Africa to do what they have done, i.e., eradicate malaria. Yes, South Korea is coming in more strongly as、mm-hmm. a supporter for malaria,、mm-hmm. and there's movement on other fronts. So we think getting the extra five hundred million from international sources is doable. You drew attention to the domestic sources, to the call for、Correct. the endemic countries themselves to come up with an additional 1.5 billion. That is not easy, undoubtedly. But what we did was look in detail at the 30 highest burden countries、mm-hmm. and look at the huge range of malaria spend as a percentage of health spend and malaria spend as a percentage of GDP. And the fact that there is a huge range. Itself tells you that there are opportunities for countries to take different so which, choices. Which, what are the three or four countries that you would say are likely to pick up the ball and move it? Well, I think Nigeria is the strongest example. Let me give you the overall factoid: if the thirty high burden countries all move their expenditure on malaria as a percent of GDP to the current median value or higher,、mm-hmm. it would generate immediately another four hundred million dollars a year. So I think looking country by country at what is being spent, how that relates to the health budget, and how it relates to tax collection and the overall government resources, is a very productive exercise and can generate significant additional investment. So Nigeria, by you'd put on top of your list as a prospect. Nigeria is the big underspender. I mean,、yeah. it's the big recipient of foreign resources. It's also、mm-hmm. the big underspender of domestic、yeah. resources, and there's very obvious potential for movement. What other high burden countries? Would you be looking to move this agenda for? I'd have to look back at our data. We have a technical annex which lists this out for 106、okay. countries. I'd have to look back to get、okay. specific examples.、Right. But one other thing, Stephen, I would quickly mention: the Global Fund has been trying for several years to incentivize increased domestic spending、yes. by saying, if you spend a bit more. Then we will allocate to your country a bit more than we would have done otherwise. We're recommending that the Global Fund and the President's Malaria Initiative get together and think through a combined strategy on incentivizing domestic investment, and we think that would be influential and very helpful to that goal. That's a very important point. You put a big emphasis on strengthening management, absolutely, which I think is very welcome, and it's a, one of the most valuable parts of this report. Tell us a little more exactly what you mean by this, because I think this is a central part of your argument. Yes, it is. I mean, we have this general heading called software, which are all the implementation execution issues, which we think are neglected, and have enormous ability to move us forward faster if we only paid more attention to them. And top of that list is management and better data for decision making. So, data-driven management. Typically today, a country has a national malaria control program, 
which applies a single policy countrywide, even though the epidemiologies may differ substantially between one part of the country and another, changes that policy infrequently, does not pay attention to locally generated data, and waits for the next piece of generic guidance to come from WHO Geneva. That is a recipe for failure. Countries need to collect their own data, make their own decisions. Management needs to be nimble and responsive to data and responsive to local circumstances. And malaria interventions need to be targeted and tailored. In this part of my country, what does the epidemiology tell me Mm -hmm. about the combination of interventions that will be most effective? So nimbleness, targeting, tailoring, Mm -hmm. data-driven, and don't wait for the next memo from Geneva. You're proposing that the call to end malaria council morph into an independent monitoring board. You have in mind sort of the polio IMB as a model. What are the prospects for that? We don't recommend that the End Malaria Council morph into the Independent Monitoring Board. We advocate for an Independent Monitoring Board based on the polio experience. Yes. The question is then, who does it belong to? Who houses it, if you like? What organization hosts it? And we think the End Malaria Council is a possibility. There are other possibilities, but it does need to be housed or hosted somewhere that guarantees its okay. complete independence, obviously. Okay. These ideas of an independent monitoring board surface in all sorts of different contexts. Yes. And the polio experience has been so salutary and so inspiring in some ways that it's given life to these concepts in a variety of ways. How would this happen? Who would move this forward, this idea? I'm sure that the high burden countries themselves are not likely to be lobbying for somebody that's going to be watching over them and and telling them how to do their business or telling them they're not doing their business. So how does this get formed? In the polio case, you had a response that had languished or flattened. Yes. And you had some very powerful players come forward, including the Gates Foundation, and say, enough of this. Let's, in the end game phase, we've got to accelerate things. We're a number of years out from your eradication target. How do you make the case and to whom? How do you move a monitoring board? Well, you're right. That's quite challenging. It's a bit like Turkey's voting for Christmas in a way. There will be little appetite in some international circles and in some countries for an independent monitoring board. Whether it's possible to form one in the near term, we don't know. It may be that, as with polio, it's an idea to keep in mind. And if 10 or 15 years from now, there is evidence of stagnation, there is evidence that we've sort of got to a certain level and we're plateauing there and we're not continuing to move downwards, which was the polio experience, one can then build a consensus at that time for an independent monitoring board. But we wanted to put it on the table early. Mm -hmm. I mean, personally, I would favor creating one sooner rather than later. But it may be that that politically proves to be not possible. If downstream we were doing so well that no one thought that an independent monitoring board was necessary, then we'd all be very pleased, obviously. Thank you. Getting back to the universal health coverage dimension of this, on the face of it, you'd think that a report coming out focused predominantly on malaria and calling for increased funding, $2 billion dedicated to malaria, would be seen as a deepening of vertical commitments that would be at odds with this movement towards universal health coverage, which is not vertical. It's calling about engaging and supporting and investing in primary systems. And you've made this important point that 
Tedros, who's the godfather and principal face of the UHC movement mm. today and staked his tenure mm. as the leader of WHO on achieving some pretty significant mm. and very ambitious goals in this regard, has embraced your report. So mm. tell me, how do you square the circle here between what would seem to be a contradiction between a call for an expanded vertical set of commitments mm. as against the call for expansion of primary systems, horizontal commitments? Key question. I think Dr. Tedros has himself articulated this powerfully. And this morning at a meeting in Congress, Dr. Mohamed Pate of the mm -hmm. World Bank mm -hmm. was extremely eloquent on this point. He made the point, which I would fully agree with, that the old dichotomy between horizontal and vertical is something of the past. Mm -hmm. We're in a world of diagonal and we need a commitment to build universal health coverage across a wide range of health services. But within that, we need commitment to specific goals that can be achieved on specific timelines. Mm -hmm. And when we looked in detail at the synergies between malaria eradication and UHC, we found a number of areas where there really is a very strong win-win proposition. I'll just give two quick examples. For both UHC and malaria eradication, you have to drive down oops. Out-of-pocket spending has to get much smaller as a percentage of total health spend. Those are complete requirements for UHC and they're requirements for malaria eradication. So you can join forces on that common struggle to reduce oops. A second example is the private sector. In countries like India and Nigeria and many others, where most healthcare is provided not by government doctors and clinics, but by private doctors and clinics and hospitals, if the government cannot bring those private healthcare providers under its stewardship, if that private healthcare provision system is very large and anarchic, as in India, as in Nigeria, you will never achieve universal health coverage and you will never eradicate malaria. So there's strong common cause to focus on key impediments to eradication and key impediments to UHC. Vaccines. You seem to be a little cooler on that idea uh, as a priority than perhaps was the case earlier. Say a bit about vaccines and the view that's taken within this commission towards vaccines. Yes. Yeah, so the commission looked in detail at the R&D pipeline and at priorities for R&D yeah. and discussed vaccines a lot and consulted with experts a lot. Our view is that the current vaccine, the only one we have, RTSS, which mm -hmm. is now rolling out in large-scale phase four trials and pilot implementation in three African countries, that that work should continue. That's extremely important. And we will learn what we will learn. And after a few years of data collection in those three countries, we'll be able to take a decision about the role of that vaccine in malaria programs more broadly. There's also a modification of that vaccine called the fractional dose version, which is receiving investment. And the commission is positive about that, worth continuing to see where that leads us. More broadly, we advocate a certain caution. We're conscious that there's been 40 or 50 years of trying to find a vaccine that does much better than nature does, much, much better than nature does. And that's biologically a challenging thing to do. Investment in a new vaccine, in our view, must be based on a very plausible argument that this new vaccine, if it was discovered and made available, would have significant 
advantages over RTSS. So not to have too many vaccines in the vaccine pipeline, not to be too enthusiastic about them, but to be very clear that when we do spend our money, there must be a very plausible argument that it's going to give us higher efficacy and longer duration of efficacy. It's not just the efficacy, it's the duration of the efficacy than what we've got today. Mm. And also, of course, we advocate for basic research, which can throw up, you know, hitherto unknown and unforeseen opportunities. Let's close with what's keeping you awake at night. Malaria, we know, is always at risk of regression, right? I mean, we know historically you can have advances and then you can have complacency or hesitation or disruption, and then you can have a rapid reversal or regression of gains. What's keeping you awake these nights? Well, I think the key is commitment. I think the key is commitment, which we have a lot of, from the country level and the regional level. There's been a huge wave of ambition Mm -hmm. and commitment coming from endemic countries and endemic regions in the last 10 years. Remarkable. We need to make that universal across the endemic countries, and we need to strengthen the commitment of the international community, whether it's RBM or WHO or the Global Fund or PMI, to eradicate by 2050 or sooner. We then need the kind of vigilance that your question implies. 23 countries have eliminated since the year 2000. All of those are now in a state of vulnerability to resurgence. So vigilance on the resurgence front is absolutely critical. Sri Lanka is a case in point. Mm -hmm. And vigilance that other things that we can avoid and prevent, you know, don't go wrong and don't surprise us. So commitment, vigilance, and being on top of circumstances as they arise. I mean, there will be events that threaten progress and we need to be ready for those. Thank you for being with us and congratulations. Well, thank you, Stephen, very much. and releasing this very impressive, provocative report. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Take as Directed, featuring Sir Richard Feacham, Director of the Global Health Group at UCSF Global Health Sciences. We invite you to subscribe so that you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date on our latest work, please visit our Global Health Policy Center program page at csis.org.